How many podcasts about psychedelics are there? There's a lot. There's a lot? Yeah. Ah, damn. Let's try this one. This one will be better than the others. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. The baby, please. I have a dream. Shouldn't we consider in every nation a fundamental restructuring of economic, political, social, and religious institutions? We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. Undo reality and remake it in a way that allows for a more hopeful present. Hi everyone, welcome to Cosmic. Human beings on planet Earth trying to figure out what the hell is going on here. There are plants that we've been taking for millionaires and that we don't know how to deal with anymore. Well, some do. Some think they do and don't. Some others will put you to jail for touching it. And most of us are lost in heaps of information, influenced by political agendas, ancestral traditions, therapeutical promises, recreational uses and religious beliefs. We are standing at the moment in history where expanding our consciousness is fundamental to our survival and the term is on everyone's lips, expanding consciousness. This show is called Cosmic, partly in reference to the term Cosmic Consciousness, a higher form of consciousness than that possessed by the ordinary man. Well, that's what we're trying to achieve at least. In this context, it's hard to not cover consciousness-expanding substances. This is not an easy, no an easy topic, sorry, because there's a lot of confusion going on. It is controversial and the space is facing many challenges. Global access to all sorts of ethnobotanicals, as we call them, moving regulation, the search for scientific evidence, misinformation and mispractice, in short, the urgent need for adapted frameworks. I am going to need some help, that's for sure. <laughs> Sitting beside me is Ben Deloinen. Hello, Ben, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank All right. You. Was I'll this help you. I'll help you. Yeah, was this a good introduction? It was a very good one, yeah. You I touched upon a lot of the, the dimensions of this okay. topic. Okay. Well, I had to read my notes because it's a new topic for me. I had to do a bit of research. It's fascinating. We were talking um, about how many themes of society it actually touches. It's incredible. Uh, and you started as a filmmaker, and now how do you call yourself? Like a psychedelic activist, or? Well, not really. I mean, I'm the, the founder and the director of an organization, a nonprofit. So, um, but yeah, really, you know, trying to steward the whole process of globalization of these peculiar plants. Yeah, that's what we're doing. And what's the story? You you were studying film, and you your I, your career took a, sh uh, a turn. Yes, very much. Yeah, I kind of graduated with a film that was the beginning and at the same time the end of my film career uh, about iboga, which is a plant coming from Africa, from the the Buiti tra tradition in Gabon and the countries around it. But I read a little article when I was in the second uh, year of film school uh, about Iboga, which has become more known uh, through discovery that it eliminates withdrawal from opiates, from heroin. Um, so 
so I thought if it's if it's a real story, you know, then it would be good for my final exam film, my project. And so I pursued the topic and I got so deeply involved in it that at the end I graduated and, you know, doing uh, reality shows for t television wasn't so attractive anymore. <laughs> so I kind of decided to really get into it. Right, so we're going to talk about your your mission. I took from the the website of your organization that you're you're really focusing on integrating ethnobotanical as therapeutic tools in contemporary contemporary society, uh, protecting the ethnobotanical practices and their environment, studying and promoting public policy based on scientific evidence and human rights. It's a lot to uh, take out here and mm -hmm. to talk about. I have a few questions for you, obviously. We're going to celebrate um, the psychedelic movement as well through music. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I'm going to try to mix a few uh, quotes from the iconic Terence McKenna, uh, who was an advocate for the responsible use of naturally occurring psychedelic plants. Mm. Consciousness 
is not the way to solve the world's problems, then I don't know what it is. Well, the psychedelics were originally described as consciousness-expanding drugs. That was the phenomenological description of what they were. We need to intervene in our own psyches. We cannot afford the luxury of an unconscious mind that can throw up a Hitler or a Khomeini. Okay, so we need to expand our consciousness. That's probably a good starting point. All right, let's do that. <laughs> uh, now, there is a lot of confusion and um, misinformation. Um, I was myself, before diving into this, very confused about some concepts and, and words. And um, so I really want to start by defining a little bit what we're talking about. It's, it's easy to get lost when talking about psychedelics. Um, are we into the drug for recreational use, hallucinogens? The, are we into the, the pop culture of the 60s? Um, and, and really the, the focus here and what's interesting for this episode is the focus on ethnobotanicals and basically which is investigating plants used by societies in various parts of the world and for a very long time for a very so, long time yes. so I, i'll let you sort of set the stage yeah so we're kind of working around practices that are not new they're very old they're pretty new to our societies here um and it's very confusing like after 10 years of working we still have troubles in defining what exactly the topic of you know our organization is and what you call these plants Because psychedelics for indigenous peoples is something they don't rela relate to at all. You know, for them it's like psychedelics. It's a term that was tossed up in the 60s. You know, it's it's not part of our culture. They see it differently. They understand it more as sacred plants, um, you know, and, and in, they're central to their, their society. They're not just for expanding consciousness. They're kind of, in a way, a... a Kind of a tool to really live in 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 relationship with the nature, with with the natural world, yep. with the spirit world, and and also used to make decisions as a as a community. So they're really focused. The traditional use is very much focused on the survival of the community and the well-being, and how to navigate that that space. Right, and that's been going on for like thousands of years. Thousands right? of years, yeah. Ayahuasca, for example, one of the plants we work with, it's not very clear. Maybe it's centuries. Um, there's always new evidence showing up. Very recently, there was uh, a little bag they found in Bolivia, which uh, from a thousand-year-old, which had a lot of traces of DMT of different psychoactives. Um, you know, iboga from Gabon is probably thousands, many thousands of years old. So these are very ancient practices, right. no? and then. All of a sudden they travel, they come in our society and that's when the confusion happens. Mm. Right, so here is for ethnobotanicals and, and more specifically I think we want to talk about entheogens. Uh, that's exactly. the right pronunciation, right? Yes, entheogens. entheogens is one way of calling them which refers to kind of the divine part of it, no? the spiritual component. Um, yeah, or psycho. I mean, they're psychoactive, psychedelic, ethnobotanicals. There's many ways to call them. But uh, yeah, I I have here uh, on my notes a, a definition. Of, I don't know. Maybe it's Wikipedia or something. Uh, you you will tell me mm. if it's accurate. Um, 
entheogens, a class of psychoactive substances that induce any type of spiritual experience aimed at development, often chosen to contrast uh, recreational use of the same drug. Entheogens have traditionally been used to supplement many diverse practices geared towards achieving transcendence, including white and black magic, divination, meditation, yoga, sensory deprivation, prayer, trance, rituals, chanting, and drumming. And in the 60s, the hippie movement escalated its use to psychedelic arts, binaural beats, sensory deprivation tanks, music, and rave parties. <laughs> you need to go on Wikipedia and, and yes. edit, maybe. Or <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it depends very much from what angle you look at it, no? And um, I think again for us, you know, very much the focus has come on the on the substance itself, but it really all has to do with the practice. So we talk a lot about, like, you know, the 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 practice, ayahuasca practice, because right. Depending on what culture it comes from, for some it's a sacrament, for others it's a therapeutic tool, for others it's just an, kind of in a way an educational tool to learn about themselves, about the world. You know, so it, I think it has to do more with how you use them, mm. the way you define them, and they're not one thing. You know, for di different people, different cultures, these are different things, really. Yep. Mm. Well, I can. Well, what I would add, though, is that I think recreational use. Um, and on one hand, it's a bit of a, an artificial separation because, you know, what what is recreational? If you if you're enjoying a therapeutic experience, is that right. recreational or not? So that line is very difficult to draw. And I think these plants that we are working around, they don't really lend for recreational use because you know ayahuasca makes you vomit. They're they're generally harsh experiences that can really confront people or they can be hmm. you know well handled in a ceremonial context but if you would go to a party and drink ayahuasca probably you would puke <laughs> your guts out and really not, not enjoy it right yeah so it's complex i cannot wait to um to take out the different uh, aspects of your work and um, analyze and and debate this um, i'll make a quick disclaimer uh, about the information in this podcast uh, not intended to encourage the use of ethnobotanicals. It is offered for information use only. Uh, we caution against the use of ethnobotanicals in violation of the law, without appropriate professional guidance and monitoring, or without carefully, careful personal evaluation of potential risks and hazards. I took this from your website. Do your research. That's <laughs> where it starts, really. Do your research. All this right. is all serious stuff. <laughs> Thank you.
as I realize that nobody has their finger on what's going on. These religions that are so freighted with their own pomposity are no better than inspired guesses. And science works its miracles by turning its enterprise into a kind of parlor game confined to the category matter and energy. Okay, so you founded in 2009, I think, the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research and Service. Um, so what was the intent uh, and where, does, yeah, where, where did that start from? I mean, it started from having made this film on Iboga several years before and going to show it to people, you know, sometimes very mainstream environments and seeing how it touched a lot of people. Sometimes even people who were, you know, very kind of upper middle class, 50 years women, you know, they're like anything that's psychoactive, you know, they weren't very open to. Right. But seeing, showing how human experiences of people who had drug addictions and then through Iboga or Ibogaine, you know, through those experiences kind of uh, dealt with those life obstacles in a very humane way, kind of inspired them. And I saw the impact that my public speaking and showing the film was having so and then later on I, I tried ayahuasca myself I had an incredible experience was very beneficial to me and, and my family you know uh, more general so I kind of felt you know I need to really dedicate to this and trying to translate or, or package the, the message about what these plants really are and the, the role they need to play hmm. for the more general audiences that's how it initially started I didn't know that I got into something so complex in the beginning. I <laughs> know, uh, like, let's stay away from drug policy, you know, from all these complicated things. Let's just focus on that. Uh, and then I started to realize the whole complexity of it. And slowly the team started to build and became more uh, multidisciplinary. And we started to really work more efficiently and because, having more impact. Uh, because you, you called a couple of people. You say, hey, I'm doing this. You've been doing this first... Um, like pro bono or you've been looking for funding or getting some funding directly how was the sort of uh, organizational development uh, it started with um, I was a freelance uh, editor um, doing a lot of television and documentary and some yep. commercials uh, and so I got always more motivated with the other piece and so I was invited more and more to speak as well no? so yep. at some point it started to fight and I started to work less yep. to work more in the organization and then You know, in 2010 is when I, five five years after, or no, or 2009 maybe, five years after I did the film, I finally did Iboga myself. And really the Iboga kind of, you know, the experience really catapulted me. It's like, just jump in the pool, you know, don't be afraid, leave the work uh, for television, and you'll just basically learn how to do this. I had no idea about fundraising, none of that. So it was all pro bono in the beginning. Yeah. People helped, you know, we got a board of directors together, people close who really tr I trusted. And then it's only maybe the last five years or so when we really started to learn yeah. how to run an organization. And, and the last few years has been an, an incredible growth. Wow. Um, really connecting to more foundations, people around the world. 
So that's a bit of how it, it grew very organically. I never, yeah. you know, learned how to run an organization. Right. I learned it the hard way. It has been well, <laughs> sometimes, you know, like, why didn't I stay with my very comfortable job editing? Well, you know why. <laughs> I know why. I know yeah. why. I couldn't go back. So, yeah. You know. Well, congratulations on the... The Thank journey you. so far, um, right now. So you're involved in scientific research into ayahuasca, iboga, and cannabis as well. Uh, policy reform activities, mm. educational activities, and services related to risk reduction and legal support, and also psychological support. Okay. People with challenging experiences, they come to us as well. Yeah. So we have a psychologist, you know, offering support. Yeah. Mm. Talk talk about your team a little bit, like the difference and and what's a sort of normal day at. Uh, it's at the it's very diverse. So we have you know the the psychologist with a PhD in pharmacology, um, you know, working with a few people in in research and different also research groups around the world that we collaborate with. We have an expert on um, you know international policy, uh, a lawyer. You know, the, yeah. and people come, anthropologists, more focused on drug policy reform, cannabis regulation also here. So, you know, it's very it's very diverse uh, team, really. And oh. uh, there's quite a lot of people involved, also volunteers in the sphere. Yep. And it's an interesting dialogue because we all have our different perspectives, how we approach things. Mine is more, I think, the, the storyteller, which, yep. you know, from my film training and trying to keep on explaining, you know, what why this is important and kind of sharing the vision more globally. But there's below that there's a lot of, you know, science and you know, the complexity of the yep. policy, societal things. So one mm. one starting point for the storytelling is um, the human rights dimension, maybe? Yeah, that's it's an important dimension. It's it's always interesting because we, we support a lot of uh, legal cases. So You know the, the plants we work around are not technically illegal, uh, but then you know one of them ayahuasca has DMT in it, which is illegal. So, a so lot DMT, of people, can you can you explain what it is? D DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is a psychoactive compound uh, which is p present in many things in nature, even in our human bodies. Um, you know, and so it's it's part of the the plant, you know, of uh, ayahuasca, but also many uh, many other uh, plants, and. Um, If you would, you know, if you would inhale it, if you would smoke it, it's a very powerful and short uh, psychoactive experience. But in a lot of the indigenous practices, you know, the brews of ayahuasca, for example, it combines two plants so that that DMT is active orally, which if not, you know, it's it's all that pharmacologically is complicated. But the DMT is illegal. It's one of the of the substances on the 1971 convention of the UN. These are the lists that basically decide what substances are illegal and, and which ones are not. Uh, and it's part; it's naturally present in in ayahuasca, and that's where the confusion comes from. Because the UN itself says no plant or concoction that naturally contains DMT is under international control, and that co governments can have their specific laws banning, which most countries don't have. Mm. But still, you know, there's a lot of arrests in Spain. There's been most arrests, more maybe over 60 legal incidents around ayahuasca. But then all of them, have, except for one who declared guilty out of fear, all of the others have been uh, acquitted. Mm. So, you know, but there's a lot of confusion around that. And so in terms of human rights, when you go to court and you see the discourse of the prosecutor, who basically says these are a bunch of people, they want to drug others, they want to make money off of it, and they use this discourse of natural medicine to basically, you know, get them you know, in the ceremonies and, and rip them off. Mm. You know, that's kind of the general focus. And then you see on the other side, people that we help defend, 
for them it's a sacred practice. They're part of a church, you know, that uses it as a sacrament. Sometimes even indigenous leaders who have been arrested, uh, their fetters, their ritual objects that represent their their uh, authority in their communities taken away, their traditional medicine taken away. While there's the UN has this uh, declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples, which rec- recognizes that they should have the right to always have access to their traditional medicine. So there, it's very complicated because there's the drug policy con- or the drug control system, you know, which is very new. Uh, all of a sudden, bumps into these uh, ancient traditions and right. plans that are globalizing. And that's what makes it so complicated. Do, do you think there's a, a broader reason of, of why it cannot be made a, a human right or this, this dimension of consciousness expanding um, without going in, into the, you know, the completest side of things? Well, I mean, you know, it, there's, there's a, several human rights that are recognized, no? For example, uh, the, the right for freedom of religion. Uh, based on that right, several churches have, have won uh, you know, legal access to ayahuasca. So in the US, for example, in uh, Canada recently, there are several churches that have been granted that right. But then at the same time, now in Holland, things got backwards because uh, they basically said in the last trial, even though it's still ongoing, but um, the, the outcome was basically the ayahuasca is too dangerous. It's a threat to public health. And that's more important than the right to religious freedom. Mm. Um, you know, there's the right to, uh, and I'm not a human rights expert myself. We have people in the team, but there's also the right to the highest attainable standard of uh, health. Mm. You know, these practices form part of that, or they should, you know, be accepted as forming part of that. No, right. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the thing is that traditionally, these cultures they have understood that these are important plans. What culture does and people do is they learn how to integrate them no, over many years. And so they, they have done that for them. It's central practices in their, in their culture. They have understood they are, it's a value to their culture. And that now is traveling. So people should have the right to have a symbiotic relationship with nature. That's really what it's, it's about. You know the day destroys the night. Divides the day Try to run Try to hide Break on through To the other side Break on through To the other side Break on through To the other side Yeah We chased our pleasures here Dug our treasures there But can we still recall The time we cried Break on through To the other side Break on through to the other
of curiosity, people of unusual or traveled circumstance usually find themselves unsatisfied with the conventional answers. So let's talk about ayahuasca specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, ayahuasca contains the psychedelic DMT that you were talking about. It's it's used in, in Peru and other parts of South America for spiritual and physical healing, as well as in religious festivals. Um, Not sure if you should call them festivals. They're more like religions right. uh, that use, you know, it's like doing the the mass, no? They, they drink ayahuasca yeah. as a sacrament. Okay. But, um, How um, right now it's it's globalized or it's globalizing hmm. since um, a few years? I think here in like Spain, more than thirty years now, so 30, it's not right. really new either. But okay. it was very limited groups that were using them. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, saying it's the focus on DMT is a very Western thing, really, because the name ayahuasca comes from the vine. So the, it's given to the Banistropsis capi is a plant that doesn't contain the DMT. Hmm. It contains other alkaloids. Um, and that's the principal ingredient. That's what makes it ayahuasca. And there's even ayahuasca that doesn't contain DMT, that you know, doesn't contain the other plant, which is a chacruna or a cicotria viridis, which is family of the, the coffee plant and that's the one that contains DMT but the name Chakruna even means kind of admixture so it's kind of an addition okay uh, the core it's really about the vine um, you right. know, traditionally but most of the brews that are now made also have the other plant that, that contains DMT naturally so um, out of the like maybe besides the the religious dimension uh, what are the the typical scenarios of, of like why do uh, people use ayahuasca so this is used all over the the amazon basin no in different cultures in uh, peru ecuador um, brazil colombia in different etnias they have some different they have different recipes they have different ceremonies they have different music they have different cultural uh, they have constructed different cultural uh, practices around them mm. but they kind of all uh, you know use ayahuasca which is called also differently in all the by all the traditions yaje in colombia you know kind of all the ambiwasca as well there's different names for it um, and so it's traditionally used very much it's all about the community which is also very different when you look at the globalization which is more about individual healing there's all this medicalization going on with psychedelics traditionally it's a community practice mm. uh, so and it's used obviously for the survival of the community so when there's disease um, the shaman or the curandero he treats that person um, and disease is understood more from a different worldview no? around spirits and yeah. very much the it allows to negotiate or to work or defend uh, in the spirit realm um, you know through, through ayahuasca that's how it's traditionally used it's also used in decision making process of communities uh, they all sit together they drink uh, you know ayahuasca and then kind of make decisions around the, um, the community things that they want to do or uh, what they don't where they don't want to go and, and, and when they do this it's more of um, uh, it's it's not the same um, uh, format let's say as when you you take it as a to 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 cure something right it's more of a it's a different way of preparing it or it's the same way of preparing it. it's it's a community ceremony you know so there sometimes ayahuasca is used also one-on-one for healing um, 
but also in communities. We are collaborating with a with an organization, indigenous organization in Colombia, uh, and they talk a lot about this. You know how they do these uh, yeah kind of ceremonies collectively, mm. and they make decisions about you know are they going to allow a certain company coming into their territory or not? Who's going to be the next leader of the community or the organization? Uh, it's very much a, a tool to avoid external or, or protect them against external threats, but also internal threats. Mm. You know? And these are societies that are communities that are very horizontal in decision making. So, uh, you know, to keep the community together in protection against outside threats, which can be uh, problems, you know, with um, access to food, can be mining companies wanting to come in, whatever it is. But it really keeps them together because the decisions are made through right. those processes. Um, and so, in the Western world, the the parallel of this, um, the, the the common use um, by Westerners here, it's more people. It's it become very popular uh, for personal growth. Um, people seeking those experiences to improve something in their life, uh, to deal with a certain you know with depression or with anxiety or grief. Uh, but also to really maximize their human potential no? and to kind of overcome, to improve their relationships and so forth. So we did a big a study we're going to publish soon in, in Peru in a center which is focused on, say, what you could call ayahuasca tourism. So people from abroad coming to drink ayahuasca in a Shipibo tradition, traditional context uh, accompanied by psychotherapy. And so most of them, you know, virtually all of them, they go either for spirituality or for personal growth or to deal with certain pathologies like, you know, addiction or depression and so forth. Mm. That's why it's become more, uh, you know, um, popular. And then also the religion. So as a sacrament for, as a spiritual practice. And they tend to drink ayahuasca maybe two times a month as an ongoing spiritual practice, which is very different from saying I want to overcome an, a life obstacle and I'm going to do ayahuasca and then until I kind of reach that objective and then people either stop you know participating or they might do a few times it's all it's very diverse uh, you know and that's why the, the problem is that in our society we have boxes for things no so right something is a medicine you so you put it in the box of the medicine and now it's the medical establishment they can use it mm -hmm. If it's, you know, if it's a, a spiritual uh, sacrament, that's another box. And once you put something in one box, it's very difficult to also put it in the other one. So, but ayahuasca, depending on where you look at it from, it's a different thing. Um, but yeah, mostly it's focused here for people on individual, more individual healing. Yeah, and, and there's also this... this um Um, magic uh, dimension of how the how different people react to the plant of, of or how the plant welcomes you into the process or not based on how you approach it. Can you talk it, a little bit about based it? On, it's basically establishing a relationship with a plant, no? And mm. to some that might sound very weird, but weird, but really, kind of, we do that all the time. Where we live in symbiosis with the with nature. Uh, so in a way, also people kind of establish that relationship and then. Uh, process can unfold. Some people might not like it and, you know, not continue engaging. Others really kind of adopt it as a spiritual practice in, in their mm. life. Mm. And you were saying that for you, it, it, it really unlocked uh, or opened doors in, in your life or helped you? Um, hmm. For, yeah, for sure. You know, I've, I've had tremendous benefit and I also had, I've had a few challenging experiences. No? So it can, it can be very challenging, confrontational, can confront people with fear. Mm. Also. And in a way, I think a big lesson can be in learning how to let go and accept 
that you're not in control. Uh, and we live in a society that where you have insurances for everything, you want to be in control of everything. This is kind of, you know, <laughs> buckle up and just go with the experience. <laughs> trying to um, create a work towards a constructive future for ayahuasca what does this constructive future look like what's the vision yeah our vision is that uh, ayahuasca has been very much spread by you know there's many communities that are using it around the world so we believe very much in a in a kind of a bottom-up process of self-regulation and then moving towards regulation where um, you know, ayahuasca or kind of medicalization of psychedelics can live within a spectrum of uses, no? And so where it doesn't become now ayahuasca is, you know, given in hospitals by, by medical doctors, but that there's a whole spectrum that respects the cultural diversity, you know, the religious uses and, and all of that. So we're working very much to kind of help um, steer that, that process. That means that you have to think about what is a good safety container look like. Additionally to, you know, what songs are sang in the, in the ceremony and kind of the whole more cultural aspects of it. You have to think about, you know, what are the ethical boundaries? How do you avoid problematic uses and unethical practices to happen? And how do you really foster more, the, you know, the responsible practices? And I think community is an important part of that. Traditionally, 
you know, it was really integrated in the community. And, and the community aspect, I think, also is what what created that safety uh, space around it. No, it's like you are accountable to people, and when uh, shamans, whether they're from you know the west or, or indigenous, uh, start to travel and do tours from one city to the other. Sometimes they are not accountable to anybody anymore, and that's when problems start to occur. Mm. Um, so we're trying to foster that diversity and then work, you know, in terms of legal defense. Uh, how can, when a legal situation comes up, how that can that be used to open the door a bit more, at least um, create, um, you know, positive legal precedence. Um, and then also for us, the vision is that imagine there's kind of a community model, no, where people can become a member, they can have access to these practices, they're part of a group. And how can also money that's, for example, generated through that by memberships or participation, how can that be connected to the medicine carriers in, in the traditional countries, the indigenous peoples, mm. and make sure that it doesn't start depleting you know, the ayahuasca right. in the Amazon, um, but that it can become kind of a constructive um, relationship. No? And I think you know, um, kind of money is always a difficult uh, one in that sphere. No, there's centers and there's kind of for-profit uh, organizations working with with ayahuasca. So how do how can we make sure there's transparency, that there's safety, and how is it you know well connected and respecting the traditions uh, while also yeah. allowing for these traditions to evolve and for new forms of using ayahuasca to come up. Um, I suppose there are. Uh, a spectrum of reactions from the from indigenous uh, communities to this uh, globalized uh, this global interest for the plants what are typical reactions yeah, some, or can you talk about yeah this? some are part of the globalization or some you know brazilian tribes they travel and they bring their culture to other countries um, others they have no idea they're you know more deeper uh, or disconnected from the outside world In our last conference, one of them from Colombia, he, you know, was blown away by this idea. It was a global phenomenon. There's ayahuasca churches. He had no idea. Uh, a lot. Some are afraid. Also, in in Peru, there's been uh, recently an incident with a Canadian who who shot uh, an indigenous, um, you know, elder, a, a curandero, or curandera. And um, and then later on, he was lynched by the community. It was like a horrible thing that happened. So, you know, so the ayahuasca tourism as well, you know, how do you channel that in a way that it doesn't re re disrupt the indigenous communities, but really, you know, is a, is a constructive mm. uh, tourism, no? An interchange. Um, I don't have the answers to all, all of that, but I think it's important to establish good relationships and good connections, you know, with different actors and try to catalyze um, initiatives that really foster that. Uh, and that's what we try to do also in our upcoming World Ayahuasca Conference. It's really about bringing perspectives together and establishing new um, you know, efforts together as a community to steer it in the right direction. So, so you are bringing um, hundreds of people together um yeah i think uh, next month can yes you, more can than a thousand more yes. than a thousand yeah so can you plug the the event and the yes sort of the yes this is from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june even though there's uh, workshops also the days before uh, and basically we're bringing together it's the largest will be the largest conference ever on this on this topic we've done two ones before in brazil in the amazon the second one the first one was in ibiza Uh, all with their specific uh, strategy. This one 
on one hand we're inviting policymakers, UN special rapporteurs, you know, um, like different people who are kind of at that spectrum and wanting to, you know, make sure that they get the full perspective in the picture of ayahuasca, why it's important and how we could, you know, move towards good uh, policy. There's uh, over 20 indigenous leaders coming from different tribes, different countries. There will be meetings and really also seeing how can we collaborate and, and move towards the future. There's all the latest research is going to be presented there from different research groups. Uh, art is going to have the largest uh, visionary art uh, ex exhibit, except for the I think the Baltimore Museum in in the U.S. So it's going to be 200 artworks. You know, dialogue space is going to be very diverse, and you know, more than a thousand people coming together here in Girona, just uh, uh, north of Barcelona. That must be a bit so of work to. Organize. It's a bit of work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all like, oh, it's going to be good. And and uh, before we close this chapter on ayahuasca, uh, so obviously we'll put the link in the episode notes uh, for those interested in mm -hmm. checking it out or even coming. Um, in a world like fast forward a few uh, I don't know years decades uh, in a world where there's a constructive um, system for ayahuasca um, practice um, what do you think can be the impact on, on society at the, at the collective level I mean I think it's important because and you know people are now waking up finally to the fact that we're basically destroying I wouldn't say the planet because the planet will destroy us first but that we have to change something in our relationship with nature and that we have to also deal with issues more at the root cause instead of you know the symptoms and yeah. just keeping everything the same so I think you know they can on that end have an important impact But I think also they can open up people to uh, understanding indigenous and the richness of indigenous culture from a different way and hopefully also do something to help uh, protect these communities and take a bit better care, make more conscious choices. And um, because I think the indigenous peoples of this world, they have a big role to play in kind of giving, getting us back on track. No? And uh, mm. there's this prophecy uh, around the condor and the eagle where The, the moment where those two peoples, one referring to indigenous peoples, who don't have so much technology, but they have a lot of, you know, they live in, in a relationship with nature and they've maintained that whole uh, space. And we here we have more technology, but we have completely lost uh, track of living in, in, you know, symbiosis with nature. When those two come together, that's really when, you know, things can, can go well. And we've seen a few examples at Standing Rock, Uh, you know more initiatives that coming that way so I see our work in a bit also in trying integration integration totally Walk and 
symbiotic relationship to the rest of nature is interrupted, we lose our bearings. So we lose our bearings, that's uh, what you were saying. Yes. Um, Terence has been talking about this <laughs> for a long time. I put a few links to a couple of interesting. Yes, and his brother keeps on talking about it. And oh, yeah? Dennis, Dennis is also coming to the conference. He's very close to our organization. He's on our the advisory board of, of ICERS. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, I think that's what it's all about. No, and nobody should be able to make it prohibited to engage in a relationship with a, a plant species. You know, it's right. We're going to take a trip to Africa now. Uh, I wanted to touch on Ibogaine uh, a bit more in detail. Uh, can you, well, can you explain a little bit what this um, practice consists of and maybe some of the, the differences mm. in popularity at this point? Yes, Iboga in, in Gabon and Cameroon uh, mostly is, you know, is a very interesting practice. It's something, when I was making my film, it's what most inspired me because it was a, a, an example of how integrating a psychoactive like Iboga looks like with the whole community. You know, it's, so Iboga is more traditionally used as a rite of passage when young mm. men become, uh, you know, adults. Yeah. Uh, and also for healing, but it's generally, it's a rite of passage. So generally it's a once a lifetime uh, event or maybe one, you know, two times, but it's not like ayahuasca where it's used more uh, regularly in processes. People practice buiti, which is the name of, of the tradition. They keep on participating and they might keep on eating small amounts of iboga in other initiations, but they're initiated once. Uh, or maybe there's different traditions in which somebody can be initiated. And the whole, you know, if you imagine, it's like f what, I, what I filmed was a, a five-day process where the whole community um, and, you know, musicians, uh, healers, people from other communities all came together for five days supporting one person go through her rite of passage, her healing. Wow. That on itself, you know, compare that with... Um, the other treatment that I filmed in my for my Ibogaine film, uh, which was in the West for an addiction treatment, where that person, his family didn't know he was doing an Iboga uh, treatment for his addiction, and you know it was all kind of uh, secret. Uh, he was alone on a bed. They kind of checked on him once in a while, but you know that was like for me the mo the biggest shock. Like the whole community is part of that. The right. Newborn babies. Till the elders, there's a social structure. There's a, a total social structure. They all and they all witness how one person kind of dies symbolically in the experience, and then you know they travel to the ancestors. That was this their belief, where they obtain um, useful information that will be uh, used in the continuation of their life, and then come back. They're kind of reborn. No, it's a death and rebirth process, mm. and they all witness that. So. The, the person who's ill they, dies and then they, is reborn in the community and they welcome that person back. So, you know, in addiction treatment where Ibogaine has been um, very known for, generally people, they're alone, there's no reintegration. They come back, they've done this tremendous work, but then, you know, the family doesn't believe them because of their life, they've lied too many times and yeah. they're kind of stigmatized as drug users. 
so that's kind of how you. you know, so how, what's the like the follow up to the to the treatment and how they rebuild their life and like that's what's what's uh, what needs structure, right? Totally, and yeah. traditionally that structure is there, no, and they don't use it traditionally for addiction treatment, or maybe that will come at some point if there's more addiction uh, in in those countries. But you know, generally it's like if illness, but also illness seen from their worldview. Uh, and then you know this rite of passage for young young men when they become adult, um, but it's you know the days after integration you don't need you don't need integration services because just living there is integrated the practice itself is integrated, uh, and we talk now a lot in the psychedelics world about uh, integrating psychedelic experiences. There's services we offer, you know we've been since 2013 supporting integration uh, for people. But it's because the practices are not integrated in our society, you know, and mm. I think that's Culturally. really the goal, I, you know, and there's examples in those countries of how that's done since millennia in a very interesting way. Uh, and do accidents happen there? Sometimes somebody dies, but it's very, you know, it's a, it's a very small minority and obviously to the communities it's way more important that they can practice uh, right. Buiti, you know. Um, but it's it's very serious. It's a very profound experience, and just witnessing it was very. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. So I suppose your, the your film is uh, online, or we can. Yes, uh, the film is online completely, and then there's a new edit we did only from the Africa footage, which is called uh, Experience Buiti, Renaissance of the Healed, which is the whole ritual of the woman that we filmed uh, from A to Z yeah. with the voiceover, also explaining what happens. Yeah. It's the most, you know, rich uh, ceremonial practice I've ever seen in my life. No, and wow. just being part of it was an all experience in itself. Well, we'll, we'll coordinate to put those links uh, yeah. in the episode notes. Yes. Um, what are some other um, plans or practices that are, let's say, prominent within that space of um, entheogens? Well, you have the, also the fungi. You know, you have um, the psilocybin mushrooms. Um, but the, and and then there's peyote, you know, in mm. in San Pedro, the cacti. They they contain uh, mescaline in the in the cacti. I think the the interesting thing for me is that the, um, ayahuasca, in a way, globalized within a ceremonial context. Like people, if you ask them, most people say, "Well, you have to do ayahuasca in a ceremonial context with a shaman or in a, with a church." Uh, Iboga kind of came to the West through an accidental discovery of the pure ibogaine, one of the molecules in the plant uh, of somebody who had a drug dependency of heroin and with his seven or six friends. And by doing it, they didn't have withdrawal. So it became a medical subculture. Mm. Uh, peyote is still very much used also in an indigenous way. Um, but, you know, it's maybe not as popular as ayahuasca, but, um, but for sure also has maintained that traditional practice. And then, you know, there's some other salvia divinorum, but there's very little indigenous use and it has become more like a strong psychedelic that people smoke in, you know, in a pipe, have a full-blown short experience. Um, but the traditional uses were very different. So with ayahuasca and with iboga and peyote, you still have a lot of the indigenous uses. Uh, and the one of ayahuasca specifically has globalized very much itself, no? the kind of the ceremonial practice. Mm.
you're watching on YouTube, listening on Spotify or on your favorite podcast app, here we are, Sunday afternoon in the sun, uh, talking about a topic that I hope um, is going to get more and more um, well talked about and well understood. What is the, the spectrum of scenarios um, when it comes to the policy framework? What are the countries that are maybe the most pro progressive and, and the, the most repressive on the other end? Well, um, you know, it depends a bit the plan, no? So in terms of Iboga, Iboga is illegal in about 10 countries, uh, the US being one of them, but also Belgium, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Switzerland, France, um, you know, many other countries it's not illegal. And then, you know, Ayahuasca contains DMT, which is illegal if you would extract it on the UN level, you know, as I said before, but um, many countries don't have a specific law. Um, one of the things that we see is that because there's this trend of the novel psychoactive substances, which are research chemicals, legal highs, spice, these you know uh, synthetic cannabinoids and so forth, that more and more these plants are put in that category. They're seen like a novel psychoactive substance, but then you know the difference is that with those novel substances they're new, so there's no history of human use, and there's no research. We don't know anything about them. Right. So it's kind of natural that they're considered a, a potential threat to public health because we don't know anything about them. Uh, here it's very different. There's a lot of science that we, we know. There's a lot of a long history of, of human use. So one thing that we've been trying to work on is trying to get them out of that category and more understood as ancient psychoactive substances that are very different. So in, in terms of ayahuasca, there are several countries. Uh, the countries of origin in Peru, it's it's uh, considered a cultural patrimony. It's illegal, uh, you know, in Colombia as well. There's So the, the countries of origin. Uh, and then in Brazil also, the religious uses are recognized, so based on religious okay. freedom. Right. The U.S. as well, after a long uh, lawsuit, um, the UDV, one of the churches, uh, acquired legal status. Some other followed, uh, Santo Daime in a few states. Now in, in Canada, there's, um, I think, five or six churches that now have an exemption. Uh, Holland as well was very good, but now it's turning sideways, um, okay. as tend to happen in Holland. There, you know, it has happened with cannabis as well. Right. So, and then, you know, in Spain, so some countries, um, basically, they don't enforce. Or when it's enforced, people win because um, basically there's, you know, it's recognized that there's no specific law banning it. Or there's countries where the use of psychedelics or, or, or any drugs are decriminalized for personal use, like Spain, like Portugal. Now, just in Denver, in the US, they uh, did a, a vote for decriminalizing psilocybin mushrooms. They were successful. So their personal use and possession for personal use is decriminalized now there. And I think it gives a, an interesting framework like here in spain we have the cannabis social clubs which was a phenomenon that we started the very bottom bottom up where uh, people who use cannabis decided to associate and to cultivate together so it's basically it's shared personal use which in spain is not considered a crime because uh, personal use of any drugs is decriminalized no And so out of that now there's also a, a, an association that uses ayahuasca and other, you know, it's kind of shamanic traditions uh, within that same framework. And these are non-profit, private user associations, which for me is a, is a pioneering model. And I think it should be, you know, further developed and exported um, to other countries. 
because it basically is people who are drinking in ceremony together, mm. you know, who are part of this organization, and they basically said, you know, there's self-regulation around it, no? uh, and it basically doesn't um, need sales of ayahuasca or any of that. It's just allowing those communities to organize and to use ayahuasca together or, or other plants. It could give the open the road for patient associations where people say with drug dependencies could enter in an association of access to iboga. Uh, you know, that's kind of all of that is happening. And then at the same time, there's the medicalization. So psilocybin, for example, not the mushrooms, but the, the extract will be a medicine probably in a few years uh, for uh, depression. Mm. So there's kind of pharmaceutical type organizations for profit. Uh, you know, they are kind of on that now and developing that. Uh, you have MAPS, you know, we've been working more around MDMA, which is, a, you know, obviously not a plant, but also psychedelic in a way. Uh, and very soon is going to be uh, available for uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in a non-profit pharmaceutical manner. Mm. So there's different forms. Uh, I think generally the fear around these substances is um, is going away because science is you know um, kind of uh, showing that there's a lot of therapeutic potential that it's doing good to many people right. the and scientific we, paradigm is stepping in to yes, make everyone and, feel uh, yeah. you know if you look at our own research that we are involved in uh, others in the space of ayahuasca it's you know it's very positive like we see how it impacts people's lives for you know with grief depression different problems but also kind of healthy adjusted people if you will who become more uh, psychologically flexible they kind of deal in a better way with their uh, problems. And we see a few uh, people who have negative experiences as well. No? So also understanding why do that, those happen? How can they be, be invo avoided? You know, what is good um, exclusion criteria and so forth? A lot of regulation or self-regulation needs to happen because we see incidents that are, could be avoided. But, you know, when it's in kind of a gray or, you know, uh, illegal environment, it's very difficult to say, uh, this is not because of ayahuasca, this is because of criminal behavior, sexual abuse, whatever it is. Right. So in order to be able to kind of distinguish what good practices look like from unethical or even criminal behavior, there needs to be more, you know, it needs to get above ground right? and it cannot be pushed uh, below. So I hope, for example, in the, in the Netherlands that they're not going to, push it further underground because it's only going to create more problems you know that's i mean prohibition has shown it over and over
Okay, we're reaching the the end of the show. That was already like so much to to take on and dive in and follow up on. I think well, it could be actually a, a whole uh, series. And there's like like with coffee, like with philanthropy, we're opening those those doors to uh, worlds that are so vast and mm. with so many people doing great work. It's really inspiring. Um, the need for information is fundamental. Um, people. It, being educated, uh, decision makers being educated. Uh, can you can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, and also people who are interested in having these experiences. No, they read about it, they hear about it. It's so important to do your research, do your due diligence. You know, if you're gonna do an ayahuasca ceremony somewhere, like really look into you know what is the reputation of that place, what you know to who are they accountable. They have things like an emergency plan, very basic things uh, for safety so do you is it going to help you at this point in your life i mean there's there's exactly ayahuasca is not for any boga and all of these plans are not for everybody and they're not for everybody in every moment of their life so it might be that at some point in your life it makes sense Uh, and also we see you know in the boga for example there's a person with a drug dependency and is the the mother you know wants that person to do ibogaine but if that person doesn't really want those experiences can be very difficult and it's easy to put the blame on yeah but you know you try to convince me it's your fault mm. so it should be really your your decision based on you know is this going to be helpful for me or do i feel a calling also to establish that relationship with the, with this plant uh, and really from there do your research you know what are the risks iboga is risks like real risks in terms of uh, lowers the heart rate it prolongs the QT which is the repolarization of the heart so people with heart conditions can't um, do iboga if you go to a place and they don't ask for any KG or any you know medical history don't go there you know if, if there's no professional people and staff you know Ayahuasca is easier, it's pretty safe uh, if you're not taking antidepressants or certain medications or other you know, substances or stimulants. But still, it can be, it can be re-traumatizing if people are trying to deal with trauma. No? So um, really approaching it slowly, you know, thinking about preparation, integration, uh, I think is all very important. Um, and really also learning more about the culture and where it comes from. And in terms of Iboga, for example, there's a shortage in the in Gabon now. Iboga has been, you know, exported uh, illegally uh, through poaching networks. No, and there's there's been recently they found ivory, you know, in the same truck with Iboga, which is really, you know, very problematic. Right. So a lot of the Iboga that's used is not sustainable, and um, you know, so people should also look into that and not just trust the person who gives it to them. Uh, they're semi-synthesized ibogaine, for example, from another plant, which is sustainable. Um, and there's initiatives to really tackle that issue and, you know, cultivating in Gabon and outside. But yeah, people should be aware of that as well. No, if if our problems here are gonna help deplete natural reserves and and block um, long-standing traditions from their plants, you know, I think there's a big problem in that. <laughs> no? and, but still a lot of people don't really care and you know also when money comes involved business comes involved right very often that comes to a second plane and it's uh, spiritual extractionism is a real risk no in in that sense wow. we we understand now the the complexity and absolute necessity of the the work that you guys are doing um 
Yeah, thank thank you so much for making some time. Yes, uh, thank you on a on a Sunday and i- initiating us to that uh, mm. to that world. I think uh, it's still a lot to uh, be talked about on yes. uh, many more media uh, outlets that hopefully are going to adopt a, a constructive. Uh, yes, discourse. hopefully they're not very good in it generally. So you know, we also try to help with that. Uh, But yeah, thank you. There's now a, a new podcast about psychedelic plants. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and uh, best of luck for the conference. Thank you. Um, I'll I'll see if I can show up. Need to check yes. the calendar, but uh, I'll definitely put the link so the uh, the audience can find out more about the program. Um, yeah, and to our listeners, well, um, good luck on the good luck on the on the journey to. Uh, expanding your consciousness mm-hmm. um, we will probably talk about uh, this vast topic again soon and uh, any questions any yeah any piece of information that you need please send us an email and we'll we'll forward it to Ben all right yeah all right well have Thank a good uh, end of the weekend yes, and you uh, see you soon for right. more cosmic interviews ciao A new day is gone.